You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is the ubiquitous Derek Schultz. He's everywhere. He's an indispensable Twitter follower. He's a member of the ISC Sports Network. His partner, Jake Query, uh, told us his Charles Manson and Mickey Rooney stories on the podcast about a year ago, and we're pleased to have Derek on. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I don't have any serial killer related stories to share on today's episode, unfortunately, but hopefully I'll, ha- I'll have some other interesting things to discuss on your podcast today. Well, the closest thing we get to that on the uh, Leaders and Legends podcast is our engineer, Chris Spangle. So if you want to share some Chris Spangle stories. <laughs> I do have some Spangle stories um, about me trying to sneak in with my not having access to the Bob and Tom studios and into the Bob and Tom green room to get snacks and, and Chris scolding me. But uh, they're mostly related to, to that. <laughs> was it because it was a particular snack that he liked or you just weren't allowed in the room? Oh, I think it was both. Honestly, I think it was a he did, he wanted to protect his snacks and B, um, I was uh, I was beneath him. So he didn't want me to be part of that. That Bob and Tom wing over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, being beneath Chris Spangle, that's perilous. <laughs> Chris, I've invited you. I invited you to be a part of this podcast. Would you like to get in one more shot before we go on to our conversation with Derek? This is your free shot. And it, in all seriousness, Chris is a, a great guy, a really talented guy, and uh, and was there for me during a difficult time in my career. And you you always end up remembering 
uh, those people that that put themselves out there for you. Not to get all emotional in the beginning of this podcast, but uh, he, I, you know, I consider him a friend, and um, I miss seeing him and that entire Bob and Tom crew. Uh, you know, that that whole group, they're they're great, great people. Well, I love Chris Spangle, and <laughs> without him, there would be no podcast. And it's not just me saying that. There's there's other people who would say that as well. I've known Chris a long time, 15, 20 years, I'm guessing. Wow. And he's he's a good man. And um, he he highly encouraged me to get you on this podcast. You and I have never met, uh, but uh, I'm glad we could finally make it happen. I don't I don't want to bury the lead because you're in graduate of Indiana University. And last week we had uh, a sometime partner of yours, perhaps Mr. Greg Doyle on the podcast. He was a terrific guest, as you would expect. And he made the, uh, the bold statement and he made it rather assiduously that Mackey arena is a better place and has a better atmosphere to watch college basketball than assembly hall down in Bloomington. Would you like to weigh in on that back Mr. Doyle up or, or put him in his place? Well, Greg's in the business of bolts as a columnist for sure. Um, but that is one that I 100% completely agree with. Um, I was a student at Indiana in the early two thousands in the immediate post night era. So when Bob Knight was fired, I was a senior in high school. I already knew that I was going to IU, but I remember sitting at home watching basically the campus burn down and thinking, oh my God, I wish I was there right now. I can't believe I missed it because I was a big Bob Knight, pro Bob Knight, Homer. You know, my, my dad, even though I, didn't, I grew up in Connecticut, my dad was an IU alum and, and we were cream and crimson the whole way. My freshman year, they made the title game uh, and that was a lot of fun. But really, outside of that, uh, I, I, we don't need to rehash what 21st century Indiana basketball is. But in those four years, I went to every home game. And for as much as I enjoy the uniqueness uh, and the character of Assembly Hall, uh, the Assembly Hall in Bloomington has some of the worst seats that you can ever possibly have for a sporting event. And I've sat in, I think, all of the worst seats at Assembly Hall, in the balconies, in the corners. The old days, Robert, you weren't even able to see the scoreboard if you were in the main under in in row 35 or higher underneath the balcony because the lip of the balcony would block the center scoreboard. So you had to literally call up to the person, hey, what's the count? (laughs) Like five rows in front of you to know what was going on. Um, So and there have been some great moments, some loud moments, raucous moments at Assembly Hall. But Mackie, there's not a bad seat in the house. And it gets loud, um, just like assembly, you know, volume wise, I think they're pretty similar, but both of those places, I have been in physical pain the next day after attending big home games at Mackey and big home games at assembly hall because of just the volume uh, just, just being in a building in an enclosed space like that for two hours with people screaming at the top of their lungs. And I love it. I love the energy in both of those places. Um, I don't want to get any hate mail for saying Mackey's better, even though I'm an IU grad. But uh, to me, the, the sight lines, the seats themselves, uh, that is what's going to give Mackey Arena the edge to me as a Big Ten basketball venue. So you were there your freshman year when IU went to the Final Four 2002. We have had Tom Coverdale, former Indiana Mr. Basketball and point guard on that Final Four team on the podcast. We love 
uh, his wife, Rachel, whose idea it was for the Leaders and Legends podcast in the first place. What do you remember about that year? It must have been pretty heady to come there your freshman year and all of a sudden uh, you kind of not only shocks Duke, but kind of shocks the world. Yeah, it, it was kind of one of those teams that I think you could see early on that the pieces were there. And if they ever really clicked, they would click. But it just took forever for that really to, to kind of come. Um, they played a brutal non-conference that year and they yeah. started seven and five. And so I think naturally the expectations were lowered because, you know, in those days going seven and five in the first two months was reason to panic. But once they got into Big Ten play, um, things started clicking for them. And it, it was just a great it was a great combination um, around a, a transcendent level player. I mean, I, I think because his his NBA career was rather unremarkable. I don't think we ever really give Jared Jeffries his just due for how good of a player he was as a sophomore that year. I mean, he was he was one of the best players in the entire country. And when you have that as your centerpiece and you surround him with role players who all excel at their roles, you know, you mentioned Tom Coverdale as a, a leader and kind of the heart and soul of that team. That was his role. Dane Fife was the bulldog, the guy that was going to get into the other teams under underneath the other team's skin. And you could also put on the other team's best player because he was an all world defender. Jeff Newton was probably outside of Jeffries was probably the most overall skilled player on that team. You know, a, a dramatically underrated uh, forward who could pop up at any moment and give you 18 or 20 points if you really needed it. And then you you kind of go down the list of of the role, you know, AJ Moye, we all know about the block against Duke, but the energy that he brought off the bench, Kyle Hornsby for his elite shooting ability. Um, and then some of the, the contributions, even from guys like George Leach and, and Donald Perry. I mean, they, they don't win the Oklahoma game in the final four without Donald Perry in <laughs> the minutes that he brought to the table when Coverdale had the, the bum ankle um, coming off of the Duke game. So it, it was just one of those teams where I, I think maybe it was hard to realize it at the time, but they had a game in January of that year where they hit 17 three-pointers. Wasn't against that against Illinois? Illinois? Yeah. And, and in those days, you know, this is – Steph Curry was like in fourth grade, right, in, in 2002. So in those days, you know, hitting 17 threes in a game was like a really big deal. And I, I think that that game was the first time that I realized, hey, wait a minute, they could really do something here. And then, of course, the Duke game, the, the floodgates sort of opened after that, and then it, it felt like a team of destiny until, you know, obviously that all came crashing down in the second half uh, against Maryland. But um, I, I – in my professional career, Robert, um, I've, I've kind of distanced myself from being a fan and my emotional involvement has really waned over the years. Um, not only for like, I don't know, I guess professional being integrity purposes, but just because there are so many things in my life that matter to me more now than Indiana basketball or the Knicks or, you know, all these things that were that my life centered around when I was 14 to 22 years old. Um, but that will always be a, a memory and some moments there that, that I really treasure, um, about my time as a sports fan that, that run in 2002, it's number one for me. Was it Mike Lopresti who just wrote the article about, uh, Mike Davis, coach Davis, that was in the Indianapolis business journal. I think it was Mike. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but it was just published here in the latter part of February. 
It's no, terrific, I, I haven't. You should look it up. It's it's terrific, okay. as a matter of fact. And and Mr. Lopresti has been a guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Uh, and he wrote what I thought was a very even-handed treatment. Uh, looking back, Davis gets selected to become Knight's successor in the middle of all that controversy. His first year is pretty uneven, even though I think that was the year that Kirk Haston hit the shot against Michigan State when Michigan State was number yeah. one. His second year, they're one of four, I think it was four teams uh, that won the Big Ten season title that year. Mm-hmm. Flamed out a little bit in the tournament, as IU always seems to do in the Big Ten tournament. Uh, but then had that run, which quite frankly, nobody could have predicted. Next few years, he had some really good recruiting wins. Mike Davis did, especially DJ White, who's one of my favorite all-time IU players. And then it just doesn't happen. The success isn't sustainable. Looking back, do you believe that Coach Davis was given a fair shot at long-term success at IU? And you can kind of argue that really not many people – no one's doing much better than he did while he was there. I think the biggest compliment that I could pay to Mike Davis is that Mike Davis survived. Anyone that was going to step into that role post Bob Knight, as messy as that exit was, was going to have a hard time, especially somebody that wasn't from here, that people weren't familiar with, And I think that we'd be lying to ourselves if there wasn't, uh, you know, I don't think this is the number one reason, obviously, that he was let go. But I think we'd be lying to ourselves if there wasn't a a racial element to that with some Indiana fans as well, Um, being the the program's African-American head coach. Uh, So I I do feel for Davis and I can't imagine the pressures and some of the things uh, that he had to go through, the treatment that uh, he had to go through. Um, And I do think that for the most part, he maximized that. Um, you know, we forget about this team because it was in his last year and the writing was already on the wall. He had already resigned at that point, so we knew he wasn't going to continue. That 2006 team in his last year actually ended up having a, a fairly nice season. They won an NCAA tournament game. Um, they were competitive in a, a second-round loss. I, I want to say it was to Gonzaga, I believe, uh, that year, a, a good Gonzaga team. Uh, that might have been the Adam Morrison team, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think they were in a 7-2 game, um, something like that. Uh, so I do think that uh, Davis, especially in hindsight, has, did a commendable job. And, and I don't think we realized it at the time because we were expecting, you know, folks were still 20 years ago expecting Indiana to be on Kansas, Kentucky, Duke level. And and now, you know, obviously all these years later, we know that, that that's no longer going to be in the cards for Indiana. But I do think that Davis um, did about the best he could, he could. And I do think that he was given... A, uh, a fair shot. Uh, if you're asking me what ultimately befell the Davis era, I think he way too often swung for the fences recruiting wise following that 02 run. And sometimes you swing for the fences and you hit home runs like landing Bracey Wright, who had a back injury as a freshman and he was never the same player, uh, even though he had a nice college career. Uh, or DJ White, who was a five star all world player from Alabama, if I'm not mistaken, as, as part of a mm-hmm. really good recruiting class. But Mike Davis also went all out for Charlie Villanueva, for Glenn Big Baby Davis, for Josh Smith, who committed to Indiana and then decided to go prep to pro um, from high school. And when when you do that over and over and over again and you keep swinging and missing, that's when you end up with some of the roster holes that Indiana had where 
you know, the old 405 team, which was DJ White's freshman year, my senior year, um, they were relying heavily on freshmen because they had nobody else. <laughs> they, they didn't have upperclassmen that were worth anything system, you know, Coverdale, um, Newton, Hornsby, Moye, uh, Leach, all, all those guys had moved on uh, at that point. So you didn't have anybody, you didn't have really kind of a foundation to, uh, to, to build upon. And, um, and I think that that's ultimately why, you know, the, the O four team was the first team to miss the NCAA tournament for Indiana since the season on the brink, 1985 team. So it had been 18 straight years of them making the tournament. And then the O four O five team had another bad non-league where they, they started off really rough and then actually had a good big 10 season. They finished 10 and six, 10, but then fell short in the big 10 tournament against Minnesota. They win, they're probably in. Um, but a lot of that had to do with youth because they were relying so heavily on, on, on some of those younger guys. And, and I guess putting a lot on Bracey, Wright As a, at that point, a third year player. One more IU centric question. We're talking with Derek Schultz from the ISC Sports Network. On Twitter, I confess, as a lifelong IU fan, I have not watched an IU basketball game in probably three or four years, just figuring that I have enough reasons to walk in front of a bus and I don't really need to add any (laughs) more. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like, kind of a fair weather fan um, but reading a, a, a tweet from Dan Dockage I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago so mid-February where his tweet basically was IU had just lost to somebody maybe Michigan why and, and basically Dockage's point was why is this so hard like why can't IU seemingly get it together I mean the defeat of Purdue notwithstanding but I think he mentioned like Arizona traded one coach for another uh, Sean Miller for a new coach. And they're like top five in the country after just a year or two. Yep. Uh, maybe briefly, just give us your, I guess not autopsy, that would be premature, but your, your sort of diagnosis of why can't IU get back to, if not top five status consistently, top 10 and are we destined to be the Nebraska of college basketball? Yeah, how about this? Why can't IU get back to the NCAA tournament? <laughs> you know, forget about top five or top ten. They, they haven't made the tournament in six years. You've, um, you've, just, you've just validated my decision yeah. to <laughs> absent myself. <laughs> Bus hits face, right? Um, yeah, I, I wish that I had an answer for that because I, I don't know. I don't know why a program of Indiana's pedigree, of Indiana's passionate fan following, of Indiana's resources and budget and recruiting ground here in central Indiana in the Midwest, where not only do you have a ton of great players in Indianapolis, but the surrounding areas as well. This is a really fertile area of the country to be recruiting from, to be in proximity to. I don't know why it's so hard. Um, I mean, it's hard to be Kentucky. It's hard to be Kansas. It's hard to be Duke. It's hard in most years to be Carolina. But we're talking about the cream of the crop, the, the absolute top. You know, there are 300-whatever teams in Division One. There are four teams that, that are on that tier in college basketball. Um, so I, I long ago gave up that Indiana would get there. But why can't Indiana be Wisconsin? Heck, as much as it might pain Indiana fans to hear this, why can't Indiana be what Purdue has been the last five or six years? Purdue is in the mix for the Big Ten title every year. Purdue is in the NCAA tournament every year. Purdue is a threat to reach the second weekend 
or even make a deep run every year. And Indiana can't even get on the dance floor. Indiana can't even finish in the top half of the league. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I think their problem goes back to figuring out who they are and what they want to be from an identity standpoint. You know, you knew, and I, I hate to make everything about Bob Knight because like everybody else, I just, I, I get extremely fatigued with the Bob Knight discussion, but with Knight's teams, they had an identity. You knew what they were about. You knew what they were going to do. And it was your job to try to stop it. Um, I think you can say that about Matt Painter's Purdue teams. You, you know what they're about. You know, you know the culture there. They're going to play hard. They're going to be real physical, defense, rebounding, the whole deal. And, and they recruit players that fit that. Um, Indiana has just felt like they've been scattershot this century. Like, they, what, what do they do well? I don't know. It changes year to year. Most of the stuff, they don't do anything well. Um, do have they had good defensive teams? Yeah, this this year's team is a really good defensive team. Have they had, had good offensive teams? Sure. You know, 2013 team was a great offensive team. They've also had really bad defensive teams. They've also had really bad offensive teams. <laughs> you know, they've had they've had good guards. They've had good bigs. They've had bad of each of those things. I, I guess they need to figure out who they're going to be and what they're going to be about, and then recruit to that and and recruit guys that fit that. And I think they've been, you know, kind of like what I mentioned with Mike Davis and, and chasing star ratings. I, I think they've done that. A lot of their previous coaches, I think Archie Miller especially, did that without worrying about fit. And, okay, well, I'm going to get this guy because he's the second best player in Indiana, and we're Indiana, so we need to have the second best player in Indiana. Well, you, you got to worry about if the second best player in Indiana fits because sometimes that player doesn't fit what you want to do. Um, and I, I think Indiana has been a little bit too, um, too ignorant of that at times. But – to me, that there is no reason in the world that Indiana can't be a consistent NCAA tournament team, can't be a consistent in the mix or at least regularly in the mix for a Big Ten title, and every seven or eight years be a Final Four threat. I, I, I don't think that that's an unreasonable bar at all. Um, and they have fallen, unfortunately, woefully short of being that level of team now for the better part of the last 18 years. If, if you're old enough, if you just turned old enough to vote, um, then in your lifetime, Indiana has been far below that level of program outside of really, really two great years. And that was the 13 year where they were number one with Oladipo and Zeller and Watford and, and that whole group. And then the 16 team, which kind of came out of nowhere, but it was Yogi Ferrell senior year and they won the big 10 outright. Um, and that was a really good basket. Not really a national contender like the 13 team was, but um, a sweet 16 team. And and um, and a very very nice season. So, the uh, I'm not exactly sure what her title is. So I'm going to call her the PR guru of the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Dina Potter, who uh, is a frequent listener to the podcast and fervent Purdue fan. And she would excoriate me if I didn't bring up her team. How has painter created i wouldn't call it a juggernaut but i would call it a locomotive up there in west lafayette that seems to consistently recruit well consistently play well and consistently have the sort of 25 and 6 28 and 7 seasons with at least a chance for a second weekend in the final or excuse me in the ncaa tournament how has he created that in his time Cause you know, he took over a, a program that was pretty barren. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, people forget how bad the the late KD years were. I mean, they were they were rough. Uh, his last year, they were that was an awful basketball team, and it's sad because he's a legendary guy, and sad he had to go out like that. I think he because he played for Katie and he inherently knows Purdue and gets Purdue and, and understands the culture there. I think really what he's done is, is put together a blueprint to replicate all of the best features of Purdue during the height of the Katie era. So the late eighties, early to mid nineties, Purdue teams. And while those teams had great individual talent, Glenn Robinson, obviously the top pick in the NBA draft in 94, um, Troy Lewis, who was an all American, you know, they, they had great individual talent, but they were about the team and they were the sum of their parts and everyone had a role and they understood what that role was and they bought into it all the way and they did whatever they were asked to do. And it sounds corny and cheeseball, but I think the best example of this in the current Purdue years in these last couple of years is Painter's ability to get heralded recruits to redshirt. So not only are you going to come uh, and play here, but guess what? You're not going to see the court your first year because we don't think that's best for the team. <laughs> you know, we don't right. think that's best for you or the team. So we want to make sure that you sit the first year, kind of learn your way, learn what's going on. Then you're going to play your second year. I mean, there aren't a lot of kids nowadays that'll sign up for that. There are a lot that say, yeah, screw that. I'm not, I'm not sitting out for a year. Are you kidding me? I can play right now. You know, I can go to Illinois and play right now. I can go to, you know, the insert ACC school here and play right now. Why, why am I going to come there and sit? And he's gotten players to do that. Um, Travion Williams, who is one of the best players in the big 10, um, comes off the bench as a senior. There aren't a lot of guys that would agree to do that, but he knows that that was what was asked of him. That's what was required of him. He does it. You don't hear him complain. He does it and he plays well and Purdue plays well because of it. Um, so I, I just think that that that's really the secret sauce. Uh, you're right in saying that I, I'm not going to make it into something that it's not Purdue is not Kansas, Kentucky, whatever, but you know, we forget in 2019, if not for a unrepeatable, ridiculous, fluky, no offense to Virginia, but it was a total fluke, the finish to that game in Louisville, where uh, Grady Eifert, I believe, or maybe it was Ryan Klein, I'm trying to, I, maybe, I think it was Klein, missed the free throw, and Keani Clark gets the rebound at half court, a freshman, fires a perfect pass to Diakite, a center, who hits a, whatever it was, a 17 footer. And all of that happens in about four and a half seconds. You replay that a hundred thousand times. And probably once that, that ends up being repeated. Um, so Purdue to me has made a final four, at least mentally to me under Matt Painter, because that was a final four team. They were four and a half seconds away. And that's just kind of what he's brought to the table for that. Pro and, and it has to come without struggles. You know, the, the Hummel, Jawan Johnson, Etwan Moore class was really what turned it around initially for Purdue. But after that class left, they had like Tyrone Johnson and AJ Hammonds and, and they kind of lost their way. They missed the tournament back-to-back -back years. They finished last in the Big Ten in 2013. So he had to kind of pick it back up again and, and figure out what direction he wanted to take it in. But every single one of those guys, you know, it, if you're watching a Purdue game and it was shirts and skins and they play it on a playground, I could, and this doesn't take any skill on my end, just from watching Purdue though, I could pick out the, just from, without the jerseys on, because you, you just know, you can identify who they are by how they conduct themselves and the style that they play. And I think Indiana needs to get that in their program. They, they need to figure out who they are and, and recruit based on fit as they do based on talent. 
you mentioned a few minutes ago when we started the podcast, you grew up in Connecticut. Was was sports broadcasting? You know, you don't think of Connecticut as this big hotbed of of sports, and probably because they don't I really have a sports team. I go, although I guess they had the Hartford Whalers. Hell, I don't remember. Uh, who they have now, but obviously the Connecticut men's and Connecticut women's basketball team are, or were uh, the women's team still, but the men's team was cream of the crop for a long, long time. How did you get the sports bug and, and how did it push you gently into broadcasting? Well, Connecticut is, uh, is tiny, but I grew up in the portion of Connecticut in, in Fairfield County that is essentially North of New York City. Um, my dad, for instance, commuted into Manhattan for his job. He worked in the MTV building, actually, which was a really cool job as a 90s kid for your dad to have. But oh, a lot of my it. friends, it was the same way. They're one or both parents commuted into the city. Um, the, the comparison that I always make is that w- when you're in Maryville or Valpo or Crown Point, uh, you don't really connect with Indiana. You, you connect more with Chicago. And that's, you know... I say I'm from New England, from Connecticut, and people think New England, but really we were in a giant New York City suburb, um, essentially, is, is how I grew up. So while the Connecticut sports landscape wasn't great, I grew up a New York sports fan. I grew up a rabid, rabid Knicks fan. Um, during the heyday of the Knicks Pacers rivalry and John Starks and all of that, I was, <laughs> I was Knicks orange and blue. I had seven Patrick Ewing posters in my room. He was my Mickey Mantle and still is. Um, you know, meeting and interviewing him at the 2018 final four was the professional career um, because that that's how much I, I just lived and died. New York Knicks and Marv Albert, who did a lot of national stuff, NBA on NBC sure. football, all of that was the play by play voice of the Knicks on MSG network when I was growing up in the late 80s and, and early 90s. And that was my first broadcasting hero. So I was under five feet tall until I was 16. So I realized very early on that I was not going to someday uh, play point guard for Bob Knight and then play point guard for the Knicks. So I love sports. How am I going to be involved in sports? And uh, for career day in third grade, I dressed up as Marv Albert. Now, this was before the um, uh, off-court scandal stuff involving Marv. Um, If you don't know about that, I'll I'll let your (laughs) listeners go ahead and look that up if they choose to. Uh, That was not what I aspired to be, but I did aspire to be him from a broadcasting standpoint. And, um, you know, ever since I could remember, I wanted to be a, a sportscaster, and, and that's really what, what bit the bug, uh, the bug that bit me there. So we would go into the city and go to Knicks games and to um, Keys games um, in high school. Uh, it was about a 50-minute drive to Yankee Stadium, so we'd, we'd drive down there and pull off the Deegan and, uh, and park in the Bronx and buy $8 bleacher seats, and that was during the Yankees dynasty era there, those late 90s teams that were winning the World Series every year. We'd go to Wednesday night games against the Tigers mm-hmm. for 8 bucks and sit in the bleachers and um, and it, and it was a lot of fun. So that was, that was kind of my, um, exposure and foray into sports was the, the New York city aspect of it. And, um, and it wasn't until I got to IU in Indiana that I, I really got to start to do things career wise there, because unlike let's say, um, North central, or, uh, I think Warren central has one. I think Ben Davis has one. Um, I didn't have a student radio station, um, at, uh, at, at my high school, I was a sports editor of my school newspaper, but um, it wasn't really until I got to IU that I started to um, get involved, get my foot in the door, I guess, career-wise, um, and, and start to journey down that path. You kind of, in a sense, almost, I hate to say, got lucky. 
that's not what I'm trying to say, but oh, I, your, I absolutely, your, I did. Your timing—I would put it this way: your timing has been perfect with regard to wanting a career in the sports broadcasting world. How much? How much time do you spend reading about sports? And and do you have a one or two kind of favorite? You mentioned Marv Albert, but locally or in, in Indiana, a Hoosier sports personality whom you admire yeah a lot let me get to your first point there about luck and timing you know sometimes i'm asked to speak to kids at iu or or local high schools and or kids just reach out to me individually they want to get in the business and they say you know what what's the blueprint and i tell them look there is no you you just have to be insanely lucky and you have to be in the right place at the right time and that's i think that goes for anybody even somebody like me who has enjoyed some i guess modest success as a uh (laughs) <laughs> you know, a middle market sports personality or, or somebody like Marv Albert. It's the same thing. Um, you, you have to get lucky and, and you have to have, you have to be right place, right time. And that's probably the same for a lot of career paths that you could choose. But um, yeah, you know, I, I spend a lot of time, it, it, almost all of my consumption, media consumption used to be reading articles and things like that. But since podcasts have gotten so big and they're so specific, um, I've found myself, especially in the last two or three years really getting into uh, podcasts when I need to take a deep dive into something or, or I have the way that I would put it is I, I establish opinion from watching myself. And then I, I think to myself, okay, is there another opinion that I should consider? Or is there another viewpoint? Like I, I'm always interested in hearing what other people have to say or seeing what other people see to see if it aligns with how I feel, or if maybe I need to divert attention to what they're saying that I hadn't thought of, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of people here in local who I respect. Um, Zach Kiefer is a fellow IU grad and is actually a little bit younger than me. And he lives in the neighborhood here. And I, I think he is tremendously gifted as a writer. Um, even his non-sports stuff has been fantastic. Um, I love the, the emotion and uh, the vulnerability that Greg Doyle puts into his pieces um, where he really puts himself out there um, and, and is honest, even, even if I don't always agree with Greg and I don't. And that's why our, our podcast was a lot of fun when <laughs> we did a, the Doyle and Derek podcast with the Indy star. Cause you know, a lot of times we'd butt heads on topics, but I, I knew he was always coming from a genuine place and being true to himself. Um, you know, Bob Kravitz, native East coast guy that that's what I grew up with. Like Mike Lupica, who's actually a total jerk in real life with the New York daily news. That was the first columnist that I was really um, exposed to a lot as a kid. And he would always just come right out with it and be blunt and brash. And he wasn't a cheerleader for the team. And I've always appreciated that about Bob um, in in all his years uh, here of being a columnist, not only with the star, but now with the athletic, but uh and a good man. Bob Kravitz yeah. is a really good guy. So is Greg Doyle, obviously, but for sure. I've had and a I chance just, I just to think work all those, with you know, Kravitz a few times and and have it in my PR capacity and have enjoyed it very much. Yeah, there, there are a lot of talented people uh, here, and it's a great market to cover sports. And I think there's a reason why uh, people like Bob, who aren't even from here, get here and then they, they stay. Because if you're not going to be in New York or Chicago or L.A., this is about as good of a sports market as you could be in just from an event standpoint to have something even as random as the college football playoff championship 
with Alabama and Georgia. You know, wh- where else are you going to get that? Plus a Final Four, plus an know, entire the Super Bowl tournament. 10 years ago, the 500, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the podcast is Derek Schultz. He does a lot of things, but he also works at the ISC Sports Network. How important to you, and, and before I want to make sure that we t- we touch on this, I read your article about the Super Bowl that was in Indianapolis Monthly, so I want to make sure that we get to that before we end the podcast. Derek is a must-follow if you're looking to know what's going on, not only with Indiana sports, but humor and the sports world in general. Derek, how important is social media to you professionally? And as a guy who who gives his opinions and gives them uh, in a gentlemanly fashion, um, Jake query, facepalm, not uh, withstanding, (laughs) how do you handle it personally? Because it can get vicious. Yeah, it can. Um, I, I think really, and this has been the case for my entire career. This wasn't really something that I learned. It's just, I think who I am personality wise, I, I just do not take myself seriously at all. I, I, I just, I, I don't, um, you know, this whole idea of being verified blue check mark, having 10,000, whatever, 20,000, 100,000, 2 million followers to, to me, it's all, it all seems so silly. Um, because just like anybody else that's following along, even a guy that has, uh, I don't, I don't think they do the Twitter eggs anymore as the avatars, right. But even some guy that just has, mm-hmm. you know, whatever as his avatar and 27 followers, I am, I'm an Indianapolis citizen. I drive through the potholes just like everybody else. Um, my kid goes to school here, just like your kids go to school here. Um, I, a lot of the same things that affect you affect me. I'm just a regular dude that happens to have been lucky enough to be given a platform at times during his career. And that's just kind of the way that I've always approached it. Um, I think when you get into trouble is when you take yourself seriously or when you feel the need to demean other people. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I, I do like occasionally dunking on people as they call it. Um, but I, I only try to dunk on those who either deserve to get dunked on or say something that deserves to get dunked on. Like that's always kind of been my philosophy. Um, have, but I, I want to ask you a question. Let me ask, since you talked about that and then I'll, yeah. uh, and then I'll let you finish. Cause I love your answer, but have you ever defended someone who everyone else was dunking on? I mean, sports figure wise, I've, I've done a lot of that. Um, and, and, and not to be contrarian, just because like a great example of this is that there is a certain subset of the Colts fan base that thinks Frank Reich is terrible at his job. And I, I actually think quite the contrary. I, I think Frank Reich is a very good head coach um, who's had a lot of bad luck, but a very good head coach whose decision making is not infallible. Um, no one is perfect, but catches a lot more crap than he deserves. I think the first go around for Lance Stevenson, I was one of the, you know, everybody loves Lance Stevenson. Now when Lance Stevenson left, people were beating him up bad. 
when that 2014 Pacers team fell apart, Lance mm-hmm. caught a lot of that. And, and I was always a defender of his because I've always liked Lance Stevenson um, for all of his faults. You know, he's just a, he's an interesting dude, um, but a guy that at the end of the day, good or bad, always played hard. And I don't think the Pacers have always had guys that played hard all the time like he did and cared and cared about the fans. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I've I've tried to I, I don't know how to phrase that um, dunk on the dunkers, <laughs> you know, I, uh, to answer your question there, but yeah, I, I have at times felt the need to, um, to defend positions that were potentially unpopular. Now, um, you know, you don't want to get too much in a habit of that because if, if you start always defending the positions that are unpopular, then people kind of see through that as not being genuine. Um, at the end of the day, you have to be, you have to be real and genuine and people have to know that it's not an act. Um, there was always something like the, the show between Jake and I, the, the way that I always described it to people was everything that we did was rooted in truth. Um, just embellished at times to the nth power, you know, uh, because mm-hmm. it makes it funnier that way. Like I am legitimately scared of pelicans and clowns. It's just a weird thing. Pelicans is just a childhood thing. We were in Florida when I was like four, I don't want to rehash the story. I don't like being around them, but I'm not going to start like running in the other direction when I see a pelican, but, but we'll embellish that to the nth power because people have fun with it. Um, so there, there is an element of it being a show, um, but it has to have, it has to come from a genuine place. I think for people to buy it, you can't just be like, Oh, you know, like family guy, weenie in the butt, like wacky Rio guys. Like, you know, we don't want to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But we wanted to be something that, that, that people sort of, connected with. Um, and, and that's what I think, uh, you know, it's going to sound like I'm tuning my own horn for a show that, that got uh, ultimately ended up getting canceled, even though we were never replaced. I mean, our, our jobs were eliminated along with right. a thousand others like the that, that had nothing to do. Yeah. yeah. That, that had nothing to do with ratings or uh, revenue or anything. We had just signed a title sponsor. I mean, that, that was just, you know, corporate BS. Um, but, and, you know, I'm thankful for iHeart and all of that. I, I don't know. I don't want people to get their, you know, underwear in a twist over that. Um, but what we tried to do with that show, and I, I think we accomplished with that show, and, and still even on the one once a week show, is that um, people tune in for sports opinions and, and all of that. But I think people tune in for us. Um, you know, the tagline for the show was a show about sports, dot, 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 mostly, because really that show was about us. And yes, we're going to talk about the topic of the day and we're going to talk about Mike Woodson and we're going to talk about Frank Reich's play calling and we're going to talk about the Pacers trades. We're going to, we're going to do all that stuff that you can get anywhere else, but you can only kind of get us from us or, or our perspective from us. And, and that's tried that. That's always the way that I've approached it both, you know, with a partner and Jake and, and also me individually, you know, I, I want to stand out and I want to be unique and creative, but I, I don't want to, get it to the point where I'm doing something that is not true to who I am or what I really believe. Um, I've never said anything on the air or written something in any monthly or said something in a podcast that I didn't believe that, that, that wasn't, you know, that I was just saying to say to listen to reaction. Um, and I know that there are people, especially in sports radio that do that. And that's, you know, to each their own. Um, but that, that's not me. I, I was, I'll, I'll never, I've never been able to do that and I'll never be able to do that. Um, cause I think being genuine and true is, is what you have to do. And social media is a, is a big arm of that because in a way the show never ends. Um, the mic is always live on social media and, and some people get into trouble with that. Luckily I haven't. 
Um, but that's the way that I've always approached it. I, I think there is a, a real responsibility with what you put out there, whether it be a cult's opinion or something as trivial as my son coming home and calling his sneakers tennis shoes the other day and us mm-hmm. having a conversation about that. You know, <laughs> I, I think, you know, you, you have to you have to be um, really cognizant of how people are going to receive things and, and tone and how they're worded and um, and what you're choosing to share. Because I, I think that's another aspect of, of social media that um, people either don't have a grasp of or don't fully understand. And I'm not saying that I I've got it all figured out because I don't, but I feel like I've, I've always had a firm understanding of um, who I am and what, uh, what I, what I want to keep private and what I do want to put out there. Um, I don't want to be an ostrich with my head in the sand. I don't want to ignore things that are going on. Um, You know, what, what happened during a a tumultuous year in 2020 with COVID and protests and and everything like that. Um, You know, I I don't want to necessarily harp on those things, but I also don't want to completely ignore them because I think if you're the sports guy that only talks sports, you're completely uninteresting to me. I, I, you know, to each their own again. Um, but in, in my, you know, what I'm attracted to and, and the opinions and the, and the people that I, I want to read and hear and listen to and watch, um, I, I want to know that there's a human being there, not just some, you know, I am a Colts robot and cover to defense. You know what I mean? Like I, there's a place for that. Um, but I, I want it to be a, about you as well. And that's how I've tried to do it myself. Who will be the Colts starting quarterback week one of the NFL 2022? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, if, if I had even a semi-decent idea of what that answer was, I'd so, probably be tweeting about it right now instead of taping this podcast, right? Um, <laughs> so you can take Carson Wentz or you can take the field. Which are you taking? I'm taking the field. Um, I think that they are... And, you know, we talk about like sources and whatever else. Um, people talk. Uh, there are things that people say without saying them. Or I guess the way that I would put it is there are messages sent by just not saying something, You know, if that makes sense. Um, sure. And. I think the Colts have been pretty clear and the the whispers around West 56th street have been pretty clear that they are actively trying to move on from Carson Wentz. Um, and I think if, if we really want to get in the weeds, the, there are kind of three people that are in play here for this decision. Reich, Chris Bauer, the general manager and Ursay. And obviously Ursay carries the most weight, but the impression that I've gotten is that, Ursay was really, I don't think it's a secret. He was upset with how the season ended, but he was really upset with just how it all kind of came to be. And a bill of goods that was sold to him, maybe from Reich and Ballard of who Wentz was and having that not come to fruition and there being some frustration there. Um, So I think ultimately Carson Wentz will not be back. Um, it's It's an interesting quarterback market because it's a quarterback market that sucks. And that can be spun in both an advantageous and disadvantaged way because um, good news for the Colts is the fact that the quarterback market stinks means that there are probably going to be teams that are interested in taking a chance on Carson Wentz. Uh, The bad news is, is that there is no obvious replacement or upgrade from what's been kind of a league average quarterback. If you, if you take out the outlier seasons of 2017 for Wentz in 2020, which was a disaster his last year with the Eagles, 
he's essentially been around a league average quarterback. Um, and most of the guys that are going to be available, Teddy Bridgewater, Marcus Mariota, um, you know, the, the standard fare on, on the free agent wire are considered league average quarterbacks. Um, and that that's essentially what you're picking from. They don't have a first round pick. Uh, this is a bad quarterback class anyway. At least that's what all the draft Knicks say. So th- there isn't an obvious solution here. Um, but it, it to me, uh, if I had to put money on it, I would say it's not going to be Wentz. Um, and the Colts, if you can believe it, will end up with their fifth different starter in five years. What's your favorite sports movie? I don't think anyone has ever asked me that before. Um, the answer is almost universally Hoosiers. So if you want to say other than Hoosiers, <laughs> I, I like Hoosiers. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite, you know what I've, I've really never, never understood about um, Hoosiers. And, and I think maybe, um, you know, it could have been painted differently. Uh, and and I, I guess we all consume media differently, but you know, th- there's been this talk, like this recent examination of Hoosiers of, well, is the story told in a racist way? And, um, I've never really kind of fully grasped that conversation because it's, it's something that happened. Um, is it embellished a little? Yeah, sure. It is. It's a movie. Right. Uh, but I, I never really viewed it along racial lines. I, I viewed it along small school, you know, Goliath versus David, not a black versus white thing, but, um, you know, again, uh, white male, the whole thing. So maybe, maybe I'm not the person to speak on that, but I know in recent years, it feels like people have been a little bit more critical of Hoosiers. Um, I, this is kind of cheese ball, but my parents grew up in South Bend and, um, my sister went to St. Mary's. My uncle went to Notre Dame. I grew up a really big, I grew up one of those hated Notre Dame football, IU basketball fans. And it wasn't until I got out here that I realized how much that pissed people off. Um, that's so I always all, really like you know, really 90% of my friends, we all grew up our Chris and I's friend, uh, April Gregory calls us reversible jackets. Yeah. <laughs> and I've heard that before. Um, uh, so that, so Rudy came out when I was in fifth grade. So I liked Rudy, but then I, I watched that as an adult and it's extremely cheesy. And apparently Rudy Rudinger himself, who I've met, isn't maybe the, um, a most above board board person uh, when it comes to business dealings, but I don't know. I digress. Um, you know what movie I, I, a sports movie that I always loved. And maybe this is because I'm, I'm a triplet. I, and I grew up with two sisters who were both sports nuts like me and they played softball and basketball. They were vastly superior athletes. They were both varsity athletes. Compared to me. <laughs> I think I'm going to guess on this movie, but, but forgive me. I don't want to be, I don't want to be I, wrong. I, I love a league of their own. <laughs> Like, I, I thought that was great. You know, Madonna, um, Rosie O'Donnell, Tom Hanks. Uh, it, it's a it's funny. Um, it's kind of a feel good, like family, like older sister, little sister sort of story. Um, I, I never thought that League of Their Own kind of it, it's kind of forgotten about in the sports movie conversation. I feel like I've never seen Bull Durham. So a lot of people pick Bull Durham. I've, I've actually never seen that. Um, the natural to me is cheese ball. Um, but. When you get in that sports movie realm, a lot of that stuff is um, is kind of cheesy. Hard to uh, pass up uh, Rocky. Uh, okay, here is my this is probably my most unpopular guy pop culture thing. Even when I was a kid, I thought Rocky was stupid. Um, <laughs> I, I was more of a 90s kid than an 80s kid. So the Cold War stuff. 
was like really kind of ending when I was old enough to remember, you know, the Berlin wall came down when I was seven. So I'm, I'm you know, you're still very young at that point. Um, so I, I probably consumed it differently than you, or let's say query who was born in 70, where that was like a constant in your life while you were growing up the whole right. USSR, you know, Soviet, you know, USA thing. But the, the boxing in those movies is so fake that even as a youngster, I was like, they're, they're pounding the crap out of each other. Like it, at least try to make this look realistic. And I think I just never, and slice stone, he, he barely talk. He's got like marbles in the mouth. And I just, uh, I don't know. I think that's my most unpopular opinion that I, I didn't like any of the Rocky movies. If you could have witnessed any sporting event in history, front row, courtside, press row, um, which sporting event would you choose? Another great question. Um, you know, personally speaking, um, probably <laughs> as a fan, the most, oh my God, I wish I was there sort of moment for me um, would have been two moments from the 1999 run for the Knicks and a lot of Pacers fans listening are going to roll their eyes. One of them is LJ's four point play, which I'm not going to, you know, uh, stay on because I know that's not a happy memory for Pacers fans, but I was 16 when that happened and it was amazing. But in the, in two rounds before that, that was the Eastern conference finals. In the first round, the Pacers played the Knicks, uh, excuse me, the Knicks played the heat and um, the Knicks heat had a great rivalry there in the late nineties. They, they, sure. they met in the playoffs in 97, 98, 99 and 2000. And in 97, the Knicks were up 3-1 in that series. And in game five, P.J. Brown flipped over Charlie Ward after a free throw. There was a melee. And Allen Houston and Patrick Ewing and a bunch of Knicks got suspended. And the Heat came back all the way um, to, to win that series. And that was would have been the Knicks' last shot at Jordan's Bulls, who I despised. I hated Jordan and I hated the Bulls because they knocked the Knicks out every year. And it was, it was, in my opinion, it was their best team. And they were not given the opportunity to, to maximize what they could be because it was taken away from them by David Stern and PJ Brown and the suspensions. So I was so mad about that, about 97, that um, the, the Knicks knocking them out in 98, 99 and 2000 were, were some of the it was like they won the championship all three of those years, because all three of those years, they won decisive um, game five or game sevens in Miami. And it was great with Pat Riley to see his smug face and Alonzo Mourning and Tim Hardaway and all those guys, Dan Marley. I couldn't stand, but in 99, they won the game because Allen Houston hit a runner that hit off the back rim, uh, popped up in the air and went in with about 0.7 seconds left. And, um, and the building outside of like probably 30 or 40 boisterous New Yorkers was dead silent. And, you know, being out in Indiana for a long time, I've gone as an opposing fan to a lot of different, like I've gone to Cincinnati to see the Giants play the Bengals. I've gone to Soldier Field, same thing for the Giants. I, I used to go to Cleveland every year to see the Yankees play there. I loved when I was still a fan being in road venues because there's nothing better than when your team is destroying another team or ripping the heart out of another team and you're a visiting fan and all you can hear is yourself cheering. I, I just love that. I, I love that even more than being a home crowd and, and sharing in that experience with everybody else. So um, you know, wish you were there moments as a fan, the 99 game five Eastern conference first round Allen Houston game winner in Miami would be my answer. Um, just generally speaking, um, I've never gotten the chance to do this and I've always wanted to do it. I, I would love to go to the masters, um, or really any major golf tournament, um, and be part of that. So probably my second answer, just because of the, um, historic nature of it would, would be the 97 masters with, uh, 
with Tiger's breakthrough moment, even though I was never a Tiger guy. Um, and still, am, I, I'm a little more now because I know that, you know, it, either it's completely over for him or it's about to be over. Um, kind of like Federer. I've, I've become a Roger Federer appreciator now that it appears things are over for him. But during his prime, I always rooted against Tiger Woods. But I just thought that that, that moment really, um, it changed a lot of things in, in American sports and, you know, iconic figures. And we don't, we don't really have that anymore where guys like transcend their sport, but Tiger was, was one that definitely did. So that, that would be my like national answer compared to like a personal feeling of a wish I was there type moment. You're listening to the leaders and legends podcast. We're talking with sports personality and Renaissance man. I believe (laughs) that that's an accurate term. Derek Schultz, Derek, you recently wrote an article for Indianapolis Monthly that is a terrific read. Uh, It takes you kind of back to the time when Indianapolis redefined what it meant to host a Super Bowl. And I think I sent you the link. Actually, uh, we did a podcast. Leaders and Legends did a podcast with Mel Raines, Mark Miles, and Greg Ballard that discussed how we how we won the right to do it, the process, the drive to to secure that Super Bowl bid. And we've had Mayor Ballard on separately and Mark Miles and Allison Melangdon. We've talked about the Super Bowl a lot on this podcast because as a kid growing up in Indianapolis, as I've said before, uh, when I was young, the only time I came downtown was to see Dick the Bruiser or Andre the Giant. There was just really nothing going on. And I've asked people like David Frick, the man who negotiated the Colts uh, coming here to Indianapolis, and, and several other people who've had a long history in this city that, you know, if I had told you in 1980 that not only Indianapolis would have an NFL team, but one day we would host the Super Bowl and completely redefine what it meant to host a Super Bowl, what would your reaction be? And the reaction, you know, the answer universally is I never would have believed it. You know, I just said you're crazy. But but collectively, we did it. And your article in Indianapolis Monthly, where you talk talk with Mark Miles and you talk with Greg Ballard and, and people not from the city about Indianapolis's performance is one of the best pieces of sports writing I've read in a long, long time. What what drove you to write that article and talk to us, please, a little bit about the process and the reception of the article? Well, first off, that that's really nice of you to say. Um, I appreciate that. Um, you know, the fact that it didn't involve a lot of my actual writing was probably why it was a good piece because <laughs> it was other people's words and not mine. But <laughs> but I appreciate that. Um, uh, I had been contributing to Indie Monthly um, for um, you know, starting when my non-compete ended from the, the layoff with iHeart. Um, so summer of 2020, essentially, um, up until the fall of this year um, on an online basis and just kind of giving them some snark for Colts recaps and and doing like little, you know, like I wrote a thing on uh, Mike Woodson. I did a Q&A with Matt Painter, you know, stuff like that uh, for online only, not published in the magazine. But um Daniel Kaminsky and, and Mike Rubino, uh, Michael Rubino, who's the editor in chief, they, they came to me in uh, late October. I think it was actually Halloween. 
and said, hey, we really want to do a oral history for the Super Bowl for the 10 year anniversary coming up in February. You know, do do you do you want to tackle it? And I think the motivation for them in, in asking me to do it was obviously with my contacts in the sports media world. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, this took a lot of effort. I mean, I, I talked to over 50 people. Um, so th- there were a lot of people that didn't even get included um, in, in the actual final piece. But I, I have all of these contacts because, you know, I've worked in Indianapolis sports. So I, I know how to get a hold of Mark Miles or Allison Melanchthon or, um, you know, Chris Gall is a friend from Visit Indy. Uh, so I, I knew kind of the foundation of the people, the movers and shakers that really made that game happen and, and the success that it was. I, I either knew them or knew of them and um, and felt confident that I was going to be able to tell that story because I was here. And, and even though I didn't grow up here like you did, Robert, um, I know Cornfield with lights. I know India no place um, because, you know, kind of piggybacking on our conversation, Knicks versus Hicks. You know, when I was 12 years old and the Knicks were playing the Pacers and Reggie Miller was ripping my heart out of the garden, I thought to myself, the Pacers, who the hell likes this team even? Indianapolis? What? Who lives there? You know, because I'm I'm a big seek, right? You know, I, I go into New York uh, for stuff. So I, I live that. I, I live that, you know, the whole like doubting middle America, even with my parents' lineage and me eventually ending up at IU. Um, there was a part of me that lived that. Um, so I understood that perspective and, and I understood, um, you know, fighting against that and, and the pride that people had here, which I, I've, I've always just felt so, I, I found so endearing um, because, you know, I, I, I like Connecticut. I, I'm from there. It'll always be home. Like, I wouldn't say that I'd throw you down a flight of stairs over Connecticut. Yet you come to Indiana and you tell somebody that you don't like a pork tenderloin and they're going to go to bat for the pork tenderloin for a sandwich. You know, they're going to go to bat for tennis shoes like I mentioned on Twitter and you're going to get a bunch of angry responses. But I, I love that fact about Indiana. So, um, you, you know, the story that I wanted to tell was this was a culmination of the sports vision of uh, the sports strategy, if you will, of uh, a very small handful of extremely intelligent and forward-thinking people led by the late, great Mayor Bill Hudnut and the, also the late, great Senator Dick Luger. Um, and there were other people that were involved in that. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to just make it about them. And really, uh, you know, essentially, you know, we're talking about a game that happened in 2012. So like a... Eh, 30 year, 25 to 30 year culmination of that, that whole plan. And there were points along the way that, that, that showed that progress, starting with the, a lot of people pointed to the Pan Am games in 87 as being kind of the first breakthrough moment. And then, you know, you start regularly getting final fours and then, you know, you build, you build, you build Peyton Manning comes suddenly Lucas oil stadium. And then it all sort of kind of falls into place. Like, Oh my God, this is actually happening. Um, so that, you know, I, I did want to kind of tell that story and, and, and it's hard because, you know, my first draft was 6,000 words because there was so much stuff that I wanted to keep in there about the scarves and you know, all these other sure. things. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, it's a magazine. So you're, you've got limitations with what you can say. Um, so I think the final ended piece ended up being about half that about 3,500 words, but um, what I'm glad you included, is- forgive me. I'm glad you included the very last quote. The very last thing you included is, is something that Allison Melangdon said on this podcast, which is, and, and please retell it, uh, her encounter with yeah. Bill Hudnut at the village. Go ahead. And that was great because Allison was the second person that I talked to for that piece out of what, like I said, I think I talked to 54 people and I knew 
the second that she told that story that that was going to be what I what I ended with. So I, I try I kind of built the piece out from Allison's quote. Um, and she told the story. She had a lot of great stories about that week. And she was, um, a lot of people said she was the MVP of that whole thing. Oh. And there was also a, you know, not, not to get off track here. There was a female aspect of that, that I think needs to be celebrated too. You mentioned Mel Raines, um, uh, Susan Bauman, um, uh, Diana Boyce, uh, Allison. There were many women that were extremely influential with how well, that whole event ended up going. So I, I think that's a story that needs to be told as well. So Allison's walking on Georgia street and you know, ev- everything's happening. That's, that's the beating heart of the super bowl for Indy. It's the super bowl village. The zip lines right there, the whole deal. And she just happens to stumble into the late great mayor, Bill Hudnut, who I think passed shortly after that. I want to say maybe 2013, he might've passed in 2012. I'm not sure. I know he was obviously alive and thank God for that to see his vision kind of come through and they embrace each other, you know, tearfully, emotionally. And, uh, mayor Hudnut tells Allison, I could have never pictured this. And I just thought that was, that was perfect because I, I think that was a feeling that every single one of us had that week where, you know, people have asked me, Hey, how do you describe that week? And I, I said, it, it was like walking around a familiar place where all the buildings look the same, but it was like Los Angeles or New York had just poured out onto the streets. Like it was so weird to think, Oh my God, this is, this is indie. This is our city um, with everything that was happening that week. And I think Allison just put it perfectly um, to, to have that tearful embrace. And you know, how many people knew seeing Bill Hudnut, you know, and, and a, a frail old man walking around downtown knew the, the role that he had played and everything that was happening that week. So we, Jake and I actually got the chance to talk to him on radio row um, when we were doing our live show there and to see the pride and emotion that he had at being there and, and having that week. It, it was really special. Two final sports questions before we get to the five questions with which we end all leaders and legends podcasts. You are from New York city and the East coast in general and New York in specific has a rather paternalistic or maybe dismissive attitude, perhaps of the territories to its West save maybe for Chicago, (laughs) but, but there's nothing in New York or anywhere in the world like the Indianapolis 500. What was your reaction the first time you were there on race day. I actually have a great story about that. Um, my dad was a car guy. He would buy and fix up dilapidated GTOs um, and race them as a high schooler. And, and, you know, he was class of 69 at Adams in South Bend and, um, you know, Studebaker, the big automaker was there sure. and, and he was, he was very much a car guy. So, when I was a kid growing up on Memorial day weekend, uh, the TV was always on ABC for the race that Sunday. And my mom would always kind of guilt me into watching it. I watched a lot of sports with my dad. Um, but auto racing was something that didn't attract me because none of my friends watched auto racing. It wasn't relevant to us in our sports lives in, in Connecticut. And, um, I thought, you know, what's the big deal? It's cars going around in a circle. I can't sit here and watch this. And he'd watch it every year. And, you know, the five or 10 minutes that I'd spend there would be to basically appease my mom. 
because uh, I'd, I'd rather be, you know, it's Memorial Day weekend, right? I want to be outside playing wiffle ball or whatever. It's beautiful weather, you know, in Connecticut, it didn't start to thaw until basically that weekend. <laughs> so that was the first time you could really get outside and enjoy the temperatures. <laughs> um, when I was a senior in high school, we decided to go out to the race as a family and, um, and drove out there and parked in the infield and we had seats in turn four. And, um, you know, that was kind of a forgettable era for IndyCar because it was in the immediate post split years. Sure. Um, Greg Ray was the pulse setter. If I remember right, I think it was Juan Pablo Montoya's first win and, um, the sea of people was something like I've never experienced before. Um, walking in and then looking around from my seats, it was incredible to think, oh my God, there, I, I, I can't even see 75% of the track and, and there are just a ridiculous amount of people around me. The roar of the engines, the roar of the crowd, the flyover back home again in Indiana. Um, there was like, I had like a physical response to the whole thing. Um, it's, it's hard to really explain. And I, I think people know that, um, that it's something that you have to experience to really appreciate. And I experienced it and I did appreciate it. Um, it wasn't until I got into my college years, I had five roommates from Lebanon, Indiana, who camped out in the Coke lot every year. And so they said, Schultz, we're going to, we're going to camp out. You come into the camp out. I'm like, camp out. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to like not shower or whatever else, but we set up temps, uh, tents in the bowels of the Coke lot. Um, you know, shot off bottle rockets and drank and cooked burgers and threw bags and the whole deal. And, uh, and that part of the aspect, the cultural aspect of it more so than the race itself was what I fell in love with after that. Because to me, the 500, as much as it's a race, it's an event, it's a cultural event. Um, and it's become the highlight of my year. Um, and I, I would have never said that as a 12 year old because auto racing didn't attract me at all, but it is, it is the one event that can't, I can't do without. Like you could ultimately, you could shut down the cult season. You could even take, I love the NBA. You could take away a Pacer season for me. If you took away the 500, like, like what happened with the COVID year, I, I was just devastated that the 500 wasn't happening that year. And I think a lot of people would speak to that too. And it's something that it's a, it's an event that's not duplicated anywhere around the world. No, um, you know, I, I know F1's got Monaco and, you know, there's Daytona and all that, but just the, the actual sea of humanity and the civic pride that comes with it too. Like, I don't think a bunch of people in Daytona, Florida are like, yeah, the, you know, the Daytona 500. I don't, I don't think they're actually like that. Whereas people are like that, obviously with the Indy 500. Last question before we get to the five questions with Derek Schultz. And this is, I'm going to ask you to try to keep this short and you're going to laugh at me when I ask you the question. So I get it. How do you fix the Pacers and do they need fixing? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they absolutely need fixing. Um, I think they're on their way. Uh, you know, Tyrese Halliburton is a, a nice young asset. I'm not sure how high his ceiling is, um, but a good young player who can grow into a franchise pillar. Um, Miles Turner, we'll see what ends up happening with that. Yeah, I mean, the second part of your question, they absolutely need fixing. And, and I think they're in the process of doing that. Um, Tyrese Halliburton is a, a really nice young asset. He's just 21 years old. Um, I, I'm not sure how high his actual ceiling is, but I think that there is a, a good chance that he ends up at the very least being a franchise pillar for the Pacers. Um, but as far as the rest of that group is concerned, they just needed to kind of move on from what they previously had. You know, you can't just 
um, keep running it back every single year with the same low ceiling pieces that they had before. And I think they finally got this year. They, they understood, Hey, we've got to make significant change. And they are, it's just tough uh, because you know, when, when it comes to the NBA compared to the NFL and the NFL, you feel like every team's got a chance. And in the NBA, you need to be really lucky and you need to have perfect timing. You need, you need to either have Giannis, a skinny Greek kid fall into your lap with the 15th pick, or you need Kawhi Leonard to decide to get traded to your team for one year and make a championship run out of it. Like what happened with Toronto? Like you, you need to be Cleveland with LeBron James and have him actually be from there and want to be there and want to come win a title there. You know, um, those are the sort of things that are required as an NBA team. And uh, the Pacers, it's just, it's tough. I mean, they've had a good run and they've had a lot of successful teams, but it's, it's tough to win titles like that. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Uh, Derek Schultz, question number one. What was your first job? Uh, my first job was I was a uh, a busboy for the uh, the Grill and Bar in Trumbull, Connecticut. It's a restaurant that does not exist anymore. Um, a hoity-toity place. So would fold the napkins like in a, in a fancy way. And I had to wear button down shirts, despite the fact I was a bus boy, but I loved it because it was minimum wage, which was, let's see, it was 1998. It was five forty five plus tips. And I would get tipped out from the waiters and waitresses and the bar. And we're talking about a place where like, you know, a, a regular two top with steak dinners and the whole deal. I mean, you're talking well into the hundreds. So you know, I would walk as a 15 year old, you know, before even salary, I would, I would walk with $200 of tips on a Friday or Saturday night. And when you're 15, and you've got $200 in your pocket. You're like, hell yeah. You know, what, what am I buying with it? Bubble gum and baseball cards or whatever. Um, so that was, a, it was a really fun memory. Um, I've just always been uh, the type of person that likes to work. Um, and I'm not saying that to like, it be arrogant or, um, you know, cast, stones at anybody else. Um, but you know, once I was old enough to work, I worked and, um, I've always enjoyed having a job. I, I took a minimum wage job at Amazon, um, while I was, uh, off, uh, on, on my non-compete and got laid off at work. And it wasn't because we were in a bad financial situation. Cause we weren't, we've been very lucky about that. Um, but it was because I, I needed to go somewhere <laughs> and do something and I have a purpose. And, uh, and that job was my kind of first foray into the working world. Question number two, what was your first concert? Ooh, it's a great one. I am not a concert guy at all. That's another unpopular opinion. I don't like loud. So, <laughs> so I have never really liked like super loud concert music. I know I go to sporting events all the time and it doesn't bother me, but music always did. Um, I saw a jam band band named deep banana blackout at Toad's Place in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, that was the first concert that I went to myself, uh, well, with a buddy of mine, but I was 16 in 99. And they were kind of like um, a jazzy, eh, I, I, I don't know if fish is really the right kind of comparison, but th that sort of like jam music where they'd have like 17 minute songs and, and all of that. Um, but my parents were are huge concert people and they are gigantic Billy Joel and Elton John fans. So between the ages of about six and 16, I think I went to every single Elton John and Billy Joel show in the greater New York City area. 
So we saw them together at Giant Stadium a couple of times. We saw them umpteen times at the Garden. Uh, I saw Billy Joel turn of the century. So 99 going into 2000 at the Garden um, with my parents, which I was, you know, almost 17 years old. The last place that I wanted to be was with my parents for a concert. I wanted to go and throw up in the woods and drink a bunch of Zimas with my friends um, or Coors Lights or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever we were drinking in high school. Uh, but yeah, the, the, that's about I've, I've probably only been to about 20 concerts in my life um, that don't involve my parents because I'm not much of a concert guy. But Deep Banana Blackout was the first one as an adult, I guess, um, if you will, on my own. Question number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? I have really gone down. Um, I have a, a a strange fascination with human tragedy. Um, and so my wife has gotten me on a huge audiobooks kick since COVID. And I just, I burn through a book a week now because I listen to him at double speed and I love it. It's, it's like the best thing that happened to the pandemic for me. Um, and my reading interests have gone from, I think my last four books have been about the sinking of the U.S. Indian SS Indianapolis, Harvey Milk, a 20 hour book on Malcolm X and the meltdown at Chernobyl. So just to kind of give you an idea, <laughs> if you've been assassinated in the last 200 years or so, um, or, you know, you've been a mass casualty, then I, you know, I've probably read about you. Um, I love stories about people that you can't pin down. And that have nuance where at the end of the day, they're human. They, they did good things. They did bad things. Um, they succeeded and they failed. And I'm trying to remember what the title was. Um, maybe a, a, a big life. Um, I, I'm sorry. I'm spacing on it right now. Uh, I read a long book about Lyndon Johnson. Um, and they're actually doing a documentary on him right now, I think, on CNN. Um, a, a four-part thing that, that's going on right now. And that time in American history, you know, I mentioned my parents were class of 69, fascinates me um, because of everything that happened, notably in like 1968 alone. I mean, you could write, people have written several books about that. But um, we went to visit LBJ's ranch, uh, Jake and I did, when the Final Four was in San Antonio and we got sent down there in 2018. We drove two and a half hours out to Texas Hill Country and I was like, I don't know anything about this dude. I knew he took over after JFK got shot, but I didn't know anything about his tenure outside of, you know, all the failings of Vietnam. And I think the story of Lyndon Johnson is really interesting because he seems to be this, you know, larger than life figure that would um, use all the leverage in the world to commandeer himself over you, but also had a uh, had a real heart for impoverished people and, and disadvantaged people and wanted to you know, do big things for civil rights and for poverty in America and his domestic plans, I think would have gained a lot more traction had Vietnam not swept up everything. So um, that was the book that I actually enjoyed the most learning about Lyndon Johnson's life and his legacy and, uh, and all of the nuances of the, the good and the bad of LBJ. Question number four, if you could witness any event in history, non-sports, cause I've already asked you that one, but any event in history, be there as it happens which event would you choose? Ooh. Any event in history and be there as it happens. Um, geez. That's, that's a really great one. Um, I think it would be 
I think it'd be really interesting to witness, you know, sports at the end of the day, sports are so trivial, right? Like something happens and it's cool. And you remember, Hey, the Colts beat the Patriots, the AFC championship. Yeah. Great. Um, at the end of the day, that didn't really impact They have real like societal impact, right? It's, it's a sports game. Colts won. It's memorable. If you're a Colts fan, cool, great, whatever. Tell your kids about it. Awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to think kind of outside the box when it comes to something that, that really was meaningful. Um, I just got done with a book on um, Gettysburg, and uh, I've read a lot of Alan Guezzo, I think is the last name. Uh, Gelzo. Robert E. Lee book as well. Um, so I, I went down kind of the Civil War rabbit hole and, um, and Lincoln's address, which we've talked about so much and has been made so much of American history, which was only what, like two minutes long. <laughs> and uh, the person that spoke before him on spacing on the name, I think talked for like eight hours. Um, Edward Everett. Yes. Uh, I, th- I think I'd like to be there for that. Um, it was the, the turning point of the war and, and obviously um, you know what that war ended up meaning. Um, I don't, I don't know if uh, I ever realized how close um, the union was to actually potentially losing that war or at least settling for, you know, the Confederacy being a, a separate entity um, or being, you know, having their hand forced, if you will. Um, so I, I think, you know, something like that. Um, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of going off the top of my head because no one's ever asked me that question before. It's a great question. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of something that had real societal impact that I, w- I would have liked to have been there for um, to act to actually see. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours completely off the record, discuss anything you want, whom would you choose? Two hours off the record and they could, they would answer any question that I wanted answered. It would need to be somebody who knew how all the sausage was made with the government. I'm trying to, <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if that person is still around that knows everything that there is to know, knows where all the bodies are buried. Um, there are so many people that interest me and, and fascinate me um, that it, it would be hard to just pin down one person. Um, but, you know, a person that, I feel like has always kept people at an arm's length and we've, we've seen a lot of this person, but, and I don't want to say he's not being genuine because I do think he's genuine. I think that's why people connect with him, but you know, I I never heard Peyton Manning's real feelings about leaving Indianapolis um, or, you know, and, and obviously that wasn't something that was his choice or the pressures of being Archie Manning's kid or, you know, being a public figure and um, some of the failings that he had as a player and being under the microscope for that. So I'll, I'll end it because I went with like the Gettysburg Address and an LBJ book. I'll, I'll actually end it with a sports figure. Um, and I've met him. And in fact, I, I just met him a couple of uh, I just saw him in person for the first time in several years. Um, a couple of months ago at HC Tavern, we were, we were scheduled to do a Q&A for Indy monthly. And, um, unfortunately his schedule just got in the way and we, we had to bag the whole thing, which I was bummed about, but I did get to meet with him and, and speak with him for a while. Um, I would love to have two hours with Peyton just to, you know, no, don't, don't give me like the, what you would say on the Manning cast, like give me the real stuff here. Um, because I, I think there's, uh, 
there's a person behind that. And I, I think we've only really kind of scratched the surface on who that person exactly is. I, I think Peyton has become a master at displaying who, what the, the person that he wants people to see. Wait, and I'm, again, I'm not saying that he's got like some hidden life or his two face or anything like that. I just think, you know, all of us, we, I don't think he's ever allowed himself to really be vulnerable. And, um, and, and that, that's a situation that I would take advantage of in a, in a two hour dinner to just kind of uh, to hear all of the real stuff. Interestingly enough, I think that's the first time we've had Peyton Manning as an answer to that question. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to, you know, I, I didn't want to just pick a political figure or something like that. Cause I don't want to, uh, you know, you know how polarizing that can be. Um, you know, I, I, I pretty much have equal fascination with, I think it would be fascinating to have a, a truthful and genuine discussion with uh, George W. Bush. I think it would be fascinating to have that same conversation with Barack Obama. Um, but because I kind of went down that path with some of your other questions, I was like, eh, I'm kind of Derek Schultz, the sports guy. So I'm going to keep it sports related <laughs> with that one. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been sports personality and member of the ISC Sports Network, Derek Schultz. He is forthcoming. He is honest. He's gregarious. He's who you want on your sports trivia team for sure. He's also one of the best follows on Twitter and you can find Derek. Let me just make sure I get this correct without reading glasses at Schultz S C H U L T Z nine, seven, five at Schultz nine, seven, five Derek. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I enjoyed it. And I really appreciate you giving us some time. I know you have a lot of demands and Lord knows there's always enough to talk about in the sports world. <laughs> I appreciate it. It was a really fun conversation because there were, um, you know, I, I do a lot of, I guess, different interviews and it's nice to answer some questions that I've never been asked before. So it was a lot of fun, Robert. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.